You're listening to Feral Attraction. Hosted by Metrico and Vero of the Science Collie. On this week's show, we open with a conversation about anxiety and teenagers. Our main topic is on communication and nonviolent communication ability mismatches. We talk about communication styles and how to handle differences of styles in your relationships. We close out the show with a question on whether to break up with someone if you have no prospects of meeting. Hello again and welcome to Feral Attraction. I'm Metrico. And I'm Vero the Science Collie. So this week, we actually have a fairly recent uh, article that was published in the New York Times. I know that sometimes the top of the show, we tend to go back a few months, but there is a recent New York Times article that Vera found that was actually really quite fascinating. And to kind of give a little bit of an overview, it, it tells a narrative of several students, uh, most of them in high school, juniors and seniors, who experience severe anxiety to the point where they're unable to go to school, they're failing their classes. And the uh, author of the article, uh, Benoit Denze Lewis, uh, investigates why this is. Why now, more than ever, are teenagers experiencing anxiety in larger and larger numbers? And uh, to do so, uh, they went to a facility in New Hampshire where teenagers and college students can go to seek advanced help with managing their anxiety and other potential issues that they might be encountering or experiencing, and uh, came up with some rather interesting sort of conclusions, things that I tend to agree with, and uh, we wanted to kind of discuss them here. Um, So one of the things that the author encountered uh, while speaking with specialists, with therapists, with counselors that work with uh, teenagers that experience high levels of anxiety, is that a lot of it, I mean, teenagers and and people have been anxious for time immemorial. It's not just some new sort of fangled thing that's happening, but what she, uh, what what the author rather, uh, sort of came to the determination is that with more awareness as to what anxiety is, it tends to have the effect of more people being able to say, oh, hey, this is what's wrong with me. So uh, it's less perhaps that people are more anxious now. It's more people have the words to sort of put to what they're experiencing. And it's important to note that anxiety is something that everybody experiences. It's, It's part of the human condition or really any kind of condition of any, you know, self-aware animal. Uh, Anxiety is what kind of triggers the fight or flight, and it helps us to remain safe in situations that are high stress. But more and more, uh, with people being more aware of what anxiety is, it's people tend to have maybe less than intelligent solutions with how to manage anxiety. A lot of people push medication, which can be helpful, but that's not a solution. It's kind of a solvent to reach a solution. Yeah, and some of the times that people recommend solutions for dealing with anxiety issues, they can actually do more harm than good, or at least not do very much good. And that's actually one of the things that I took away from the article that is something that I feel like I talk about on the show fairly often. And one of those is the idea that for people who are suffering from anxiety, 
the urge to avoid all of the triggers of your anxiety and avoid all the situations that might make you experience anxiety, that urge to do so can actually be really counterproductive and ultimately harmful and can, can kind of take you away from resolving the anxiety or from actually lessening it over time. Instead, what is often actually helpful when treating anxiety is one of the cornerstones of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is something we talk about on the show pretty often. But one of the benefits of cognitive behavioral therapy is that as a component of it, there's usually a component of exposure therapy. And exposure therapy is generally speaking, letting someone who suffers from severe anxiety actually be exposed to one of their anxiety triggers, but usually in a controlled environment where they, they still basically have a safety net to catch them in case they become overwhelmed. And the idea is that by exposing them to these triggers over time, they essentially become desensitized to them and no longer experience such anxiety in response to worrying about what might happen when they're exposed to these triggers. Essentially, one can think about anxiety as a disorder in, in which one fantasizes about negative versions of the future, and those negative versions of the future then produce stress in the present. For example, so, oh, yeah, go, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Metrico. Okay, yeah. Oh, wow, we're already talking over each other. Huzzah! <laughs> <laughs> um, for example, though, if you're a high school student and you're looking to get accepted into college, one of your major anxieties might be, oh, God, will I not get accepted? Am I not good enough? What happens if I'm not accepted? And that kind of anxiety can kind of burrow. And it's not something that you necessarily want to speak about openly with people because you're worried, oh, well, people have other problems. People, you know, this is something that's stupid and I don't want to, and people can sometimes not verbalize what it is that they're feeling. And a lot of the time anxiety can be best helped if you're open about it, if you, if you talk about it with people, because then they can sort of say, hey, well, this is a way, you know, maybe you're thinking of it too far in advance, or hey, even if you're not accepted here, there are other places you can go. It's not the end of the world, right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. The problem with anxiety oftentimes is people feel uncomfortable even admitting that they have it, because like, as you just mentioned, there's a lot of negative self-talk, a lot of negative judgment and shame associated with anxiety, especially in our culture. I think the article touches on some of that. But you can easily imagine someone like, let's, you know, imposter syndrome is a very common source of anxiety for people. That's basically the anxiety that results from feeling like you actually aren't qualified for the position that you're in in life, or that you somehow faked your way to where you currently are, and that you're about to be found out and discovered to be a fraud. But, you know, that's actually, you know, one thing that I, working as a medical writer, uh, I once read a study of physicians that talked about, they actually experienced very high levels of anxiety and depression that can result in physician burnout. And one of the reasons the doctors tend to experience high levels of anxiety is they experience very high degrees of imposter syndrome, but they don't feel like they can talk about it because no one really wants to hear their physician feel, hey, nice to meet you. I feel like I might be a fraud. You know, like that's not really something you can walk around saying. Like if you're a pilot or a physician, like, you know, you can't really be like, yo, I, I feel like I might be a fraud. Um, because you don't really, it doesn't really inspire confidence in the people you're treating, but, um, <laughs> right. that, but like, think about that. Like, you know, that actually is a hugely anxiety producing profession and it's really hard to talk about in that profession because you're expected to be basically all knowing and, and supremely competent at all times. Right. So that, that, that's a, that kind of situation can also present itself with a high school student applying for college because 
colleges also expect you to be all knowing and basically perfect in order to get into school, right? You have to be, you know, have all these, you know, amazing things on your, on your record and have this wonderful, crazy resume with all this amazing volunteer experience that you're supposed to have time for in addition to school and socializing and sleep and work, right? So it's kind of impossible, but people don't want to talk about how they, how impossible things feel. They don't want, they, and they don't, they feel like they're the only ones suffering that. But one thing that this article really does, and I really appreciate about it is it kind of blows out of the, in the, out in the open, this idea that anxiety is this small condition that not many people experience because it's actually really kind of core to a lot of people's experience and also the uh, adolescent experience. So yeah, go ahead Metrico. You think you've been waiting patiently there. No, you're <laughs> so <laughs> something that the article does mention is that anxiety is, the third, like, in, in terms of mental issues or disorders that people face, it is the third highest in America, at least. So it is rather predominant, and it's something that a lot of people will experience not, maybe not constantly, maybe not throughout their entire life, serious heightened levels of anxiety, but it is something that we as people will experience from time to time. And it's important to note that it's not just things like applying to college or imposter syndrome. It can be things like, I don't know where the money's coming from to pay rent or to have food, things of that nature. Anxiety impacts everybody. And it's important just straight out the gate to understand that regardless of why you're experiencing anxiety, it doesn't matter if you think that it's not legitimate, the fact that you think that it's not a legitimate source causes you to underplay it, which in fact causes it to escalate further and further and further. So it's important to look at it in real terms, because if your solution, kind of like my parents' solution uh, to anything that I would express feeling anxious about was, oh, well, they're starving children, so maybe you should just you know worry about that. The idea that, well, people have it worse, so you're worrying about nothing, or you're being stupid, which was a very common phrase that was said to me, um, doesn't really help because it delegitimizes your stresses and it forces you into a position where you feel more afraid to open up. So it's another anxiety built on top of it. So it's important to find people within your life that you can open up about your anxieties and, and in a relatable way, not in a way that you feel you're going to experience shame. And in a way that is productive. One thing that the article does mention is that there are a lot of methods that people use in order to, we'll, we'll say, cope with anxiety. So if you're feeling anxious about school, just don't go to school today. It's okay. If you're feeling anxious about work, well, you can probably call out today. They won't mind. That doesn't really teach you the way to, to sort of move past your anxiety to find a way to overcome it would probably be a better term. Yeah. One of the great examples that I like that I think I actually relate to very much myself is I have a lot of um, phone anxiety or social anxiety surrounding making phone calls. And uh, when I was younger, my mom would often make phone calls for me because I would just not want to make phone calls. I just hated placing phone calls. I could, I could sometimes deal with it if somebody called me, but I got way too anxious if I needed to call someone else. And so my mother would often make a phone call and then like hand me the phone when someone was already talking because for some reason that was easier for me. But like it took me a long time to figure out how like enforce myself to make phone calls because you know I wanted to go into school to be you know a journalist 
And I was like, well, shit, if I'm going to be taking journalism classes, I'm going to be doing interviews. And like, you know, a lot of that's phone based. And how am I going to do this? So I kind of had a bit of an anxious crisis when I was in high school and taking my first journalism class because I finally had to confront my social anxiophobia and anxiety surrounding placing phone calls. But I maybe could have done that a lot sooner if my mother hadn't kind of enabled me by placing phone calls for me for most of my childhood, right? And she, of course, that was well-meaning. She just didn't want me to be stressed out about, about making the calls. And she had, obviously didn't know that she was, you know, perpetuating the problem. She, if she had known that, she probably wouldn't have done it. But the fact is, she probably did perpetuate my anxiety because what she did actually allowed me to avoid confronting it rather than to get over it. And in the context of therapy... It might be that someone actually set up a dummy situation with a, a conspirator was placed, you know, next to a phone. And I was asked to, while sitting next to my therapist, to place some phone calls and have that, that person pretend to be different people. And we have to have a few different conversations. Or in, in the second round of that type of therapy, the therapist might actually force me to place some wrong number phone calls. So not, not only am I now being forced to, to place a phone call, but I'm being forced into an awkward situation where I'm go almost certainly going to be like stressed and have to talk my way out of like, calling a wrong number. So other situations where, again, you're just being exposed to the anxiety over time. It's being ramped up until eventually you just you get so good at dealing with, with the situation that when the situation happens in the natural world, it no longer stresses you out. That's kind so of the idea. It's also a great way of sort of confronting the idea that if you do something, if you make a mistake, if you have a failure in your life, it's not going to be the end of the world. It's, I can definitely really, I, I still have anxiety whenever I have to, well, say cold call people, even if there's somebody that I know. In fact, I'll often text them or message them before saying, hey, are you free for a phone call? And it's, it's more because I never want to put somebody in the position where I'm disturbing them, if that makes sense. So it's something that even I sort of struggle with. It's, I mean, I'll obviously still make phone calls, but especially if it's like something that I need to do, but in cases where it's possible for me to ask if it's okay, if I'm not disturbing them, then it's, I'll go ahead and do that. One of, one of the things that a lot of institutions are doing that I find to be a bit troublesome is they're allowing these sort of coping mechanisms to kind of stay in play. And the unfortunate part is that that's not an accurate reflection or a healthy reflection of how the world operates. You know, as you experienced in college, your mother wasn't there to make your phone calls for you. Uh, when I did interviewing uh, and I was a hiring manager for a former job, I, I had a few people that I was interviewing coming in, come in with their parents and their parents handled the interview and we did not hire them. And it's not because they weren't competent. It's that you need people who can stand on their own and who, when adverse situations come their way, they're resilient. And unfortunately, in some environments, if you can't sort of handle certain amounts of pressure, then unfortunately, we can't employ you. Um, obviously, some allowances can be made for some things. It's a uh, for example, if someone's like, I don't really like making phone calls, then maybe you don't put them on the phones as much, but still it's like, yeah, sometimes you got to pick up the phone. Like, damn it, come on. Yep. So, you know, one of the things that I really took away from this article is the fact that there are, there is a good movement uh, for people to raise awareness about anxiety, but also as opposed to proposing these ideas of perpetual coping mechanisms. They propose methods of how to handle the anxiety for students, for young adults, whoever it might be. 
because it's important to have a twofold approach. You want to help them come to a point where they're able to handle their level of anxiety in a way that is productive, but also to overcome their level of anxiety and grow more resilient to the pressures of the world. It's uh, a lot of things that uh, are being proposed are things like exposure therapy, where maybe they're not ready to make the phone call. Maybe they'll just shut down. So you role play it. You have a group of people and you role play making phone calls. And it sounds kind of silly to some people, but it definitely helps. Um, some people I know it's I love doing icebreakers with groups of people, especially for new employees, because it's a way to sort of help people overcome their anxiety, especially if they're anxious about meeting new people, about opening up, because it's important for everybody to understand that the social setting that they're in, whether it's a professional environment, whether it's amongst friends, they are in a group of their peers. And even though they might come with pre-existing baggage, we'll say, everybody does and everybody can feel awkward. And the good news is that once the icebreaker is over, it's over and everybody can talk about, oh God, that was awful. And we hate doing those, but they do serve that kind of a purpose. So it's good because it helps to undo some of the damage that is unintentionally done by well-meaning individuals. It's uh, I know some parents may, uh, for example, give in to coping mechanisms for children that they have that experience anxiety or other forms of mental issues, whether it's depression or, or whatnot, because they, they have their own life. They have to get their kids ready for school and they might have two, three kids and it's, there's not enough time. And if one kid isn't cooperating, then the entire, you know, car has to stop and you can't necessarily put everybody else's life on hold. So sometimes sacrifices are made and they can be well-meaning. Oh, so you're not feeling up to school. Okay. Well, all right, well, we'll try again tomorrow. And then that becomes, okay, we'll try again tomorrow and so on and so forth. And it perpetuates to a point where there's no forward movement. It's just kind of in stasis. And that's not a sustainable form of lifestyle. So it is important that people who do experience anxiety that that gets to the point where their normal day-to-day life is impacted, where they can't go to school, they can't go to work, they suffer from forms of agoraphobia or, or whatever it might be, they do seek the appropriate help. And it's also important to understand that medication is not a me it's not an end. It is a means to an end. It helps you to level out. And then you're able to sort of seek that conclusion that you need. All too often, especially when I was growing up, the solution was just prescribe Adderall. That didn't really help a lot of people that were hyperactive that as a result of their anxiety who were acting out because they were anxious. It just sort of buried it. And then as adults, they don't necessarily have the tools they need and they struggle to find long-term employment because they're unable to sort of regulate their behavior in a professional environment, which is unfortunate. Yeah, one of the best uh, studies of anxiety in adolescence is cited by the article that we're talking about this week. But that study looked at what was effective at treating anxiety in adolescence and found that the most effective treatment was actually medication in combination with cognitive behavioral therapy. That cognitive behavioral therapy alone was approximately as effective as medication alone, or that the most effective therapy overall was the combination of the two. And that makes good sense. I think if I had to choose 
what the way that I would approach treating anxiety in myself, I would probably seek therapy first. And if therapy was not successful in dealing with my anxiety, I would then look at adding medication on top of therapy. Unfortunately, I feel that people tend to go the opposite direction with that. They, they, people want to do the easy thing, which is just throw drugs at it. And if the drugs don't work, then we'll maybe, maybe try a therapist, I guess. And that to me seems like a backwards sort of approach. But um, I, I understand why people do it that way, because it's easier to give somebody a prescription than it is to find them a therapist, because we have right. pr pretty poor access to mental health care in this country, unfortunately. But I do think if you can, if you're in the position where you could find a therapist and, uh, you know, that's something that you could pursue, I do find cognitive behavioral therapy super, super uh, helpful. And so does the, the medical community finds it super, super helpful for, for anxiety. And unfortunately, there are, there are a lot of really good cognitive behavioral therapy resources online and forums and things and anxiety forums that you might be able to participate in that, you know, you might say, hey, I can't really afford a cognitive behavioral therapist, but would you be willing to be my kind of CBT buddy and just talk to me about this stuff, you know, and you might be able to find somebody who's able to, you know, maybe not from a professional standpoint, but someone who is at least familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy can then help direct you through some of the kind of thought rechanneling exercises in cognitive behavioral therapy that can alleviate anxiety. And that can be something you might find helpful. So just try to try to find resources where you can. In some cases, you might have to be creative just because, you know, access to, to mental health care resources can be pretty poor in a lot of parts of the world and parts of this country in particular. But, you know, good thing is anxiety is something that people can get over and we do have pretty good therapeutic approaches for at this point. It's just a matter of finding the access to them and being willing to internalize those new thought patterns in order to get over your anxiety. And it might be important to detail what you mean by CBT. There are two <laughs> different forms. You're looking for cognitive behavioral therapy. You might be looking for the other type. And I mean, if that's the case, you know, if you can get a two for one, like that's perfect. Like get your kicks and get your mental health fix. That'd be um, very cathartic for somebody who is into masochism, I imagine, to get both at maybe. once. Yeah. <laughs> be very efficient, perhaps. Um, I don't necessarily know about the benefits of cognitive behavioral therapy in subspace, but that would be worth doing research on. Cognitive behavioral therapy in subspace sounds like a really bad B-movie, doesn't it? Yes, it does. <laughs> All right. We'll do a Kickstarter for it. Um, <laughs> one thing that I will say is that... Um, there, especially in the modern age where people are so hyper-connected to social media, things like Instagram, Twitter, whatever it might be, there is a tendency for people to sort of always be on their device, and that's fine. It's a lot of people, their phone is the best way for them to communicate with their friends, but it is always important to understand that you can put your phone down. Some people think that the solution for overly anxious teenagers is to take away their smartphones put them on regular phones that have just the ability to text and make phone calls. And that's not really a good solution because then you further isolate teenagers, uh, especially amongst their peers. Um, and that can be almost as damaging for some. It's important to kind of keep in mind that you elect in a lot of cases to go to certain websites, uh, there are features and uh, functions on the internet like Ask FM or Curious Cat where people can submit anonymous questions and that can be a vector for bullying. And if you find that people are full of hate and vitriol on those and it's causing you anxiety, 
the option might be to delete, or the option might be to find another way to communicate with your friends. It's There are ways that you can go about sort of regulating your consumption of media that causes you anxiety, especially as a teenager. That doesn't necessarily go the routes of, okay, well, I have to add mom and dad and they have to see everything that I do. Because that's, that's, that's a whole bundle of anxiety right there, let me tell you. Oof. But just to push back on you there for a second, Metrico, and this, this is an, an example, by the way, that was brought up in the article. This, this Ask.fm uh, example was actually brought up in the article that I thought was kind of interesting. There was a, a teenager who was kind of, uh, kind of e-brutalized e on Ask.fm by a bunch of really mean, uh, questions and basically like, go kill yourself type comments that somebody made to that person. But, uh, one thing I'll point out about that situation is I think because, of, you know, the nature of that being very abusive, Deleting the profile might be the right response and just trying not to think about it in that situation. But that's actually still an avoidance strategy. If you were, you know, maybe able to tolerate that in a clinical context, maybe a, a clinician could set up a profile where they kind of say somewhat mean things to you and you just, and they train you that for every time you receive a mean comment, tell yourself two nice things about yourself instead. Right. So flip those comments around or something like that. And th there are ways of then kind of building resiliency so that when you do encounter that type of mean comment in the real world, you aren't able, you're not at that point going to break down. However, if you're going, you know, receiving 60 comments of go kill yourself a day on a, on a profile like that, it's totally legit to delete it and shut it down. Right. <laughs> That's more my point. Yes. Yeah. And also for people who may not have access to clinicians or therapists and may not be able to build that network that is required you can delete your profile isn't an avoidance tactic possibly but at the same time it's something where you are still in control of your action it's not it's less i'm not going to this site because it's if you frame it in the correct way it's less i'm not going to this site because it's full of hateful people it's more why do you go to these sites? Why do you go to these social media sites? It's to speak with your friends. If you're not speaking to your friends and it's just people pouring hate your way, then it's not worth your time. That might be a different way to frame it. But yes, it's if you do have professional guidance and the ability to sort of have a reaffirmation buddy that is able to guide you and to help you into positive mindfulness in situations like that, then it can definitely be a good vector for you to approach. But again, it's I try to take a practical, as cost-free as possible approach in, in my sort of day-to-day. -day. <laughs> so it, it might be the case for you that if you're feeling overly anxious about, oh God, there's so much happening, it's hard to keep up. Oh God, every time I open CNN, it's just a terrible news story after a terrible news story. No oh God. Sometimes less consumption is better for the soul. And it's perfectly fine to take breaks from social media. It's perfectly fine to take breaks from following the world news, especially if you're finding that it's kind of overburdening you and it is causing you severe anxiety. I will say that in the long run, though, if it continues to be an issue, then that would be a good point to consider seeking professional guidance or support and finding a way to incorporate better mindfulness techniques within your life. But overall, if it's something that 
I mean, I go through this every now and then where it's it's less the content and it's more just the amount. Twitter can just be a constant deluge of things and that can feel overwhelming and anxiety inducing. And sometimes it's good to sort of clear your head, refocus yourself. So that's a good technique to use in my mind. It's less avoidance and it's more restructuring and practicing personal mindfulness. Think of it as meditation without the internet, which sounds kind of silly in the digital age where we've all but implanted the internet into our skulls. <laughs> but <laughs> so it's a good article in the New York Times. It's really great. We link to it in our show notes. I would recommend you give it a read, especially if you yourself suffer from severe anxiety or general anxiety disorder. It's something that might give you a little bit more insight and perhaps some new ideas other than, well, just stop being sad or stop being worried. Because um, if you're getting that, I'm sorry that my mother is talking to you and you should probably tell her to shut the fuck up. <laughs> but, uh, I think we're going to move on to our main topic unless you have anything else to add, Vera? No, or? I think that's fine. And, you know, our main topic mm -hmm. this week is communication mismatches. And this is something that I... I uh, wanted to talk about because it came up uh, while we were having a discussion in the chat room for the podcast, which you can access via our contact page on our website if you're curious. We have a couple of Telegram groups that are devoted to uh, the podcast and allow our fans to interact with us and chat with each other and stuff like that. Really great community. If you haven't checked it out, highly recommend it. But this conversation came up about talking about communication mismatches because sometimes one partner in a relationship it's just at a completely different level of ability when it comes to communicating and empathizing relative to other members of the relationship. So maybe it's a polyamorous relationship and the three people who've been together for a very long time are all wizards with nonviolent communication and are great at empathizing with each other. They're always practicing direct communication. They're really good at communicators. And bringing in a new person who is younger than them and just doesn't have that background, doesn't isn't really great at direct communication, was maybe raised to be an indirect communicator, there's going to be some clashes there that can't fully be resolved just by the people who are well-trained with nonviolent communication, practicing nonviolent communication really well. There's still going to be some awkward conflicts and some moments where people miscommunicate just because they're coming from such different worlds in terms of communication styles. So the way we wanted to handle this episode was to kind of talk about what happens when these styles mismatch first by discussing what the styles are. So we're going to talk about what, what, what different types of communication styles exist so you can identify your communication style. And then what we're going to talk about how those can be kind of moved towards being more effective communication styles, which tend to be the more direct and nonviolent communication styles. And once we've finished covering that, we're then going to get into talking about how to actually handle it when these mismatches do happen and you actually get into conflict with a partner that are based in not really kind of being able to practice nonviolent communication or not being familiar with it. So that's kind of the outline for the show. Yeah. So it's important to note that before we get into it, that these are not all the commu communication styles that, that exist. It's There are plenty of other different styles, but... To go over every communication style would be more of a lecture, and it would be a 10-part series, and I would have to make charts and graphs, and I'd rather avoid that. So I've broken it down into 
really, I would say, four different main groups, opposing groups. Um, the first we've actually spoken about before in communication styles when we talk about direct communicators versus indirect communicators. So I'm not going to spend too much time on sort of detailing the differences between the two, just to kind of give you a general outline. But if you're interested in a little bit more detail, episode 16 has a lot more information. Uh, that's our communication styles episode. So where we talk about direct versus indirect communicators in particular. So if you're a direct communicator, you tend to convey your desires in the forms of a want or a need. So I want to move closer to you. I need to get a new job. These are very direct statements that tend to be more linear. Uh, there's little room for nuance. There's little room for misunderstanding. It's very much so you are at point A and you want to get to point B. So it's it's sometimes there can be a little bit of context applied. So we live a little, we live pretty far away. So I want to move closer to you. Point A, point B, you have reached your destination. That is what your want is. And now the discussion is how can we meet this want? So... Sometimes the issue with that, though, direct communicators can sometimes come off as being a little bit aggressive or rude, especially to their counterparts, indirect communicators. Uh, so sometimes being as direct, it can be somewhat of a detriment, especially if you sort of come about it in a way that's a little bit condescending, which that can sometimes be a tonal approach or it can be a body language approach. Yeah, and that's something I wanted to talk about because I'm a very mm -hmm. direct communicator myself. And that tends to work really well when you're talking to other direct communicators who are used to being approached that way. But I am often accused of being condescending or not being sensitive enough to the way someone's feeling about something because I cut to the chase so brutally sometimes that people feel like, wow, you didn't even care about how I felt. You just, you just, wanted, you just wanted to give me a solution. And you don't want to come across as uncaring because I'm actually a super caring person. Like I, I care very deeply about all of my partners and like probably to almost to an unhealthy degree and but sometimes I don't communicate that very well by being too direct so sometimes I actually force myself to be less direct because I want to be sensitive to the fact that they need their emotions to be cared for before I launch right into my needs and wants or addressing their needs and wants sometimes what people want is a little bit of empathy and just to know that you're hearing them and that you're kind of feeling their pain before you launch into that directness so direct communication is a great problem resolution uh, communication style, but direct communication is not always the most appropriate thing to use when you're, say, trying to console someone or comfort someone uh, or reassure someone. Sometimes you need to be a little bit more froofy when you're having those types of conversations. Absolutely. It's uh, one of the faults that it can have. You can come off as being incredibly detached. Um, I sometimes struggle with that where you kind of strip away layers of empathy and it's like, I want to resolve this issue and I don't necessarily care about, oh my goodness. Mm. <laughs> I want to resolve that issue too. Me too. <laughs> Everybody, this is what New York City is like. It's just constant cars and, oh, that's a massive truck outside my front window. So how about you talk a little bit more of Vera while I figure out what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> okay, sounds good. So, you know... The problem with, you know, as I mentioned, with coming off as aggressive as rude by being a direct communicator and being detached can often, you know, we said it boils down to being an empathy problem. And that's really the, the situation. So one thing you can do to resolve if you want to keep using direct communication while still managing 
to seem caring and empathetic is to always focus on the other person's perspective before communicating your own. And this is something that we teach in nonviolent communication, which we'll talk about a bit later on. But it's essentially the idea of you want to kind of, it's kind of counterintuitive, but in order to get your own needs and wants addressed, it's often best to first try to address someone else's wants and needs. So make sure that you're first communicating that number one, you've heard, and number two, you're willing to you know interact with the other person's needs and wants before you communicate your own. So instead of saying, I want to move closer to you, you might first say something like, I understand that it's been really hard for you to deal with the fact that we've been long distance for this long, and it's been very hard for me too. I want to move closer to you. Right. So th- at that point, it's a context thing. It's, you're not just you're not just jumping right into it, but you're first expressing an empathy, an understanding for your partner's emotions before launching into your own needs and wants. Right. And that that pretext, that preface can often bridge the gap because a lot of the time people just want to know that they're being heard. And when you are engaged in solely resolution conflict, it can actually prolong the conflict if there's some kind of an issue that's being discussed. And I've run into that many times where my style of conversation has definitely sort of accidentally prolonged or actually caused a micro argument in the form of our discussion. So that can be a little bit uh, disheartening at times. Um, So direct communicators are often paired against indirect communicators, which is essentially the opposite. So if direct communicators convey things in the forms of wants and needs, it's indirect communicators tend to use vague statements or stories. Um, So rather than, you live pretty far away from me, so I would like to move closer. It's just, you know, you live pretty far from me. Or it will be nice to have a better job. They don't convey wants or needs. They're just kind of these statements that are just like, okay, how do I respond to that? Like, yes, I can probably see that. So do you want to find a new job? Like what are, what's going on here? You know, another example of this that I think comes up a lot in in social situations is instead of saying, do you want to hang out right now? Or can I come over? Someone might say something like, man, I really don't have much to do today. Or, I got my day off that I've got the day off from work, you know, and so they kind of just imply things, but they don't actually come right out and say them. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's an implic it's a vague implication that people are supposed to interpret. And sometimes there can be agitation if the interpretation is incorrect. Um, a lot of, I've run into people who will give the man, I have the day off and I'm just like, well, enjoy yourself. And then I go off and do my own thing. And they're like, I had the day off and we should have done something together. I'm like, you should have asked me. I did. No, you definitely did not. Like, right. Where I'm classically not very good at picking up on that kind of shit. Cause I'm such a direct communicator. I assume there's somebody wants something. They're going to ask me a lot of the time, especially if I don't know somebody. If I know somebody happens to be an indirect communicator, I can, I force myself to kind of listen for it a bit more. But otherwise, I'm usually so focused on my own shit that I'm just I'm very direct. And so it's like, I have no, like, enjoy your day off. Exactly. It's like, have fun, man. I'll, I'll be over here doing my own thing, you know? You know, I've also run into individuals. Uh, my mother was kind of this way where she would be more story driven and she would talk about things that she wanted. But in the context, of, you know, 
oh, I have a friend who, and it's just kind of like, uh, okay, well, that's great. Thank you for sharing the story about your friend. And then two days later, it's actually some kind of a weird Aesop's fable that I was supposed to divine that she wanted me to go to the store to get her a 24 pack of Diet Pepsi. It's like, how was I supposed to reach that conclusion? You told me a 20 minute long story (laughs) that was like, jesus's parables on the mount like what the hell woman so it can come off as being overly passive actually and kind of just like yeah well you know if it happens it happens if it doesn't i'm going to get mad that it didn't happen but i'm going to be passive about the presentation and that really frustrates me because when people communicate indirectly to me Oftentimes, I interpret their need or want as being less significant than mine or less because my, they're not, it's not advocating for themselves. So without that advocating for your need or want, sometimes I might not, I might then choose to pursue something else because someone else is advocating for their need or want a bit more. That's kind of the case of the squeaky wheel getting the grease, right? So especially in the case of a polyamorous or open relationship, you got to be really careful about this because if you're in a relationship with a bunch of other direct communicators and you're the only indirect communicator all the direct communicators are going to be communicating their needs and wants constantly. And your partners are going to, by default, be working on fixing those problems because they're the ones they're hearing about directly. And they might accidentally miss the problem you're having because you're not actually directly talking about it. It's not out in the open. So all the communication is going to be about resolving the ones that are out there. And your problem, which is this kind of vague in the background thing, might not get addressed because you aren't directly advocating for your needs and so you might be really upset when your partners never then get around to helping you out but they might not be getting around helping you out because you don't actually have a clear idea of what you need help with because you haven't actually asked and it can be really frustrating because you feel like you have asked but they don't and they haven't gotten the message and that's not entirely their fault so there has to be a way that you guys can both work around this one of them is the indirect communicator can at least be self-aware and mention to the direct communicators hey just want you to know that i tend to communicate really indirectly so if i keep talking about something and it seems like it keeps coming up but i'm not actually directly asking for something maybe you can drag it out of me what i actually want or need out of you because if i keep bringing something up it's something probably an unmet need in there somewhere right (laughs) so you you can kind of train you can kind of train the direct communicators to listen harder for your needs behind the words that you're saying listen for the needs and wants behind your messages that's one thing. And then obviously you can work on being more direct. When you have a need or want, you can work about putting that in positive action language. I need you to do X. I want you to do X, right? That's positive action language. Doing that can make your communication a lot more direct and can help kind of solve this as well. So that's just a self-awareness issue. And again, kind of a meta-communication issue where you talk about how you talk and work out some workarounds that allow you guys to communicate a bit better, maybe some patches you put over this until you manage to get on the same level. And that's kind of the, the way I would recommend resolving this issue. And the reason that we're talking about communication styles is it is important that you are self-aware of what your style is, because especially in cases where you're dating somebody that has a different style, uh, a lot of indirect communicators that I've known tend to be a little bit angry when I don't pick up on something, much like a direct communicator would be angry if I just kind of blow them off. Like, I need to go to the bathroom. I'm just like, no, you don't. And I just keep the car going. Like, it's, it's, of course, they would be rather upset because then they're like, well, great, you're not listening to my needs and I'm communicating them directly. It's the same for indirect communicators. Uh, so it's important that if you're 
needs are not being met and you recognize and you are self-aware that you are an indirect communicator, that you identify that and you try to work on ways, just like Vera was saying, to both directly communicate with your partners or to perhaps kind of say, hey, I'm an indirect communicator. So if I mention something like maybe read a little bit more into it than you would with somebody else because and we'll work on fixing that down the line but for the time being like please for for our own sanity at this point let's let's make sure that we don't get into meta arguments because oftentimes indirect communicators tend to go the route of well you never listen to me well you never think that what i'm saying is important and it turns it into a very you know zero sum meta argument that doesn't really address the key point so just be aware of that um there's there's another type of uh, communication styles uh that's competitive versus affiliative and this one you tend to find more in businesses but this can actually come up especially in pack houses or polyamorous relationships especially where you have different relationship uh, rather communication techniques that are used uh so when we talk about affiliative communication styles, uh, those tend to focus more on collaborative discussions to resolve issues or problems or come up with ideas. Uh, they're, they're more egalitarian in nature. So as opposed to, I want to go to the movies, it would be, I want to go to the movies. What does everybody else want to do? And everybody can collaborate and sort of come up with an idea that everybody, or at least the majority of people would enjoy. And then they go from there. Uh, it's... In more affiliative communication styles, open arguments or disagreements are, are seen more as like direct challenges, and they're kind of viewed as aggressive or hostile, or they're taken in a personal fashion. So it's kind of the idea that, you know, what's good for the collective good is good for the collective good, and sometimes when people raise issue or direct concerns, it can be viewed as a personal attack, it can be taken kind of to a level that's maybe not intended. Um, sort of like when a direct communicator is with an indirect communicator, sometimes words can be taken as more hostile or aggressive when people just kind of want to address an underlying issue. Uh, so one way that you can sort of, you know, come to terms with all of this is it's good to, especially in relationships that are egalitarian in nature, it is good to seek input from everybody and it is good to seek ideas from everybody before coming to a final solution. Um, it's kind of a shitty thing to do for your husband or wife to come home and you're like, hey, honey, I sold the house. And they're like, uh, what? You want to have a more affiliative style relationship communication system set up where everybody feels comfortable talking about their ideas and their sort of expectations. But at the same time, you need to allow room for direct challenges, for direct concerns, and for arguments to be taken in a way that are not personal. It's important to understand that sometimes arguments are not an attack on you or really the behaviors you have. It could be that there's something that is an underlying issue that needs to be addressed. And by approaching arguments in a healthy fashion, you're going to be more successful over the long run in your relationship. Now, this contrasts with the competitive style, which is just like it sounds. It is more on one person wanting to be the dominant. And you see this with hierarchical 
uh, style uh, pack houses where there's one alpha and then everybody else kind of falls in rank to where the alpha makes the decisions and everybody else falls in line. And this can work in relationship systems that are set up like that, that are maybe not egalitarian, maybe it's uh, lifestyling a dom-sub sort of situation, but at the same time, it's people that are more competitive in terms of their communication systems tend to view collaboration as impeding the process or being an unnecessary burden. If you talk about a problem as opposed to fixing the problem, it's a waste of energy. So again, it can come off as being incredibly impersonal, incredibly detached. And in cases where it's kind of employed in an egalitarian relationship, it can be incredibly abusive. Now, my example for this is a kind of one that I like to get back to that comes up at furry cons a lot. Some And it, it tends to be in friend groups where people are all trying to figure out what to do for food at a con. Somebody who has a competitive communication style is going to be like, we're going to go get Thai food. And you, you all can come with me. I'm leaving to go get Thai food in five minutes. Everybody who wants to come with me can come with me, right? That would be the competitive way of deciding how to get food or where we're going to go to get food. Right. Whereas the affiliative style would be, hey, guys, I'm thinking about going to get food. Probably be leaving in about 30 minutes. How would everybody make a suggestion of where to go? Maybe we can all vote on it. You know, we'll, we'll, or maybe everyone can make a suggestion. If everybody doesn't object to it, we'll we'll go with that suggestion. If we get too many objections, we'll have somebody else suggest something. And you all can put input in, and then we'll all make a decision together, right? And maybe the same person ends up making the decision ultimately either way, but the way that we arrive at the decision is different. And that can – both can work. Now, the thing is, the reason I bring that up is because oftentimes in my friend group, I, I'm the person who commits the – Food, what food we're going to get decision. That's my job oftentimes. And I often use a competitive communication style if I'm with a group of friends that I know well because I already know what their food preferences are and I don't really need to consult them and waste a bunch of time on it because I already know. And so I can kind of mentally, in my math, put the Venn diagram together, everybody's dietary de <laughs> desires and can figure out the place we should probably go. And because I don't like wasting a ton of time, I don't like, I know how long it takes for us to decide where to eat. And like, that's something you can figure out at conventions is like, the amount of time you think you'll be at dinner, you have to multiply that by three to figure out how much time it's going to take to figure out where to go for dinner if you actually have a proper conversation about it with everyone. So sometimes for the sake of expediency, as you mentioned, Metrico, it can be a lot more direct and a lot less uh, time intensive, a lot less energy intensive to use a com competitive communication style in certain circumstances. But again, it has the context is important. In my case, it's I tend to use this style more with people who I know extremely well. And I tend to use it more also in my relationships that are not egalitarian, as you mentioned, because people who are submissive to me are going to default to trusting my decisions and aren't going to need to question everything I'm saying or know my motivations behind everything because they default to trusting me. That would be true in a situation with that, where I'm with somebody who's my total power exchange submissive, but might not be true when I'm talking to a total stranger or somebody who I'm trying to make an impression on. So it's probably a good idea to use this style more so in certain circumstances and not in other circumstances. One thing I want to make very clear is it's not like direct communication is always better than indirect communication or that affiliative communication is always better than competitive communication. Because no, that's not true. All these styles have their proper place. But what we're trying to help you recognize is when you might be incorrectly or inappropriately applying these communication styles in situations that could have another style applied more effectively. Would you think that's fair, Metrico? Yeah, that's very fair. And it's also important to understand that you can incorporate both into, you know, one drawn out conversation. Using the same example with friends at a convention, 
often when it comes to mealtimes and people want to eat out, it's I'll say, okay, let's do Thai food. And if nobody objects, we'll do Thai food. And if somebody does object, then it's like, okay, well, that didn't work. So let's try to figure out something else that works. Make another suggestion. Like even in the conversations you and I have, like about food choices when we're at conventions or when you were in New York, it was, hey, do you want to do Chinese? No, can we do this? And that was kind of back and forth. And hey, we figured it out. Like it was, it started out as competitive or more domineering. And then it kind of went to more, hey, how about this? How about that? How about this? And ping pong until we landed. But to be fair, that is that is technically still a competitive style because one of us is just throwing out a suggestion without asking the other one for input first, right? So technically speaking, that is Mm -hmm. still a competitive style communication. It's just we're so we're very adept at bouncing off of each other, and because we're used to that with each other and we're using the same style, it doesn't create a conflict because we're both comfortable saying throwing those suggestions out there if one of us was not comfortable with that i'm and if i took offense every time you threw out a suggestion of where to get food without asking me what i was interested in that wouldn't work very well right so again one of the other thing that's really important is that no communication style exists in a vacuum it's also really important to keep in mind that the context of your communication includes the style that your partner is using when you're talking so the way that your interlocutor is receiving your communication totally changes how what you're saying is perceived. So if the way your partner's perceiving what you're saying is in a competitive mindset, then that's going to kind of frame what you're saying in a different way. So you need to keep in mind how your partner is used to communicating as well. And in our case, the two of us were used to communicating that way, and so it was totally fine. But that's where the idea of being less experienced with something can make a big difference, right? Exactly. So that's another pairing of convers- of communication styles. The next one is more in terms of conflict resolution. You have people that are more into explanatory styles versus venting styles. So people that have more explanatory communication styles, uh, when it comes to conflict resolution, they tend to be more focused on discussing the overall issue and trying to strip away the layers of failure in order to kind of figure out what happens, they can resolve it and prevent it from happening. Now, Metrico, I have to say I'm extremely guilty of having a really strongly explanatory communication style to the point that pretty much all of my partners hate me whenever something bad happens to me because I want to talk about it like really weigh the fuck too much. <laughs> and this is like, so I personally, this is something that I struggle with is having a very strongly explanatory communication style and sometimes not knowing when to turn off this urge to strip away every single thing that happened and get into the nitty gritty and address every little thing that went wrong. Because while that does make me feel better, it often makes everyone around me feel really bad because like, it's just like, wow, we have to go through all this like carnage with you and this is not fun. And it's you know holding up my day at this point where you know like come on Vera get 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 the fuck over it already, so like that that could that's kind of the downside to explanatory communication. You might think oh what's wrong with talking about a problem that sounds totally good and healthy. Well it is, but everything in moderation, right? Absolutely, and you hit the nail on the head. Like to people that tend to take a more venting approach, which is where something bad has happened, and rather than wanting to kind of discuss the nitty-gritty of it they just kind of want to just say this sucked why would you do this and they just want to purge it from their system all in one go and kind of move on from it you know so the explanatory question might be you lied to me why did you do that whereas the venting style might be you lied to me i can't believe you did that to me i can't believe you would do that and so 
while there might be apologies after the fact and everybody moves on, they're just two different sides to... And it took me a long time to figure out that two of my partners in particular have a venting style and I have a explanatory style. So we were having constant conflicts with each other over this particular issue until I figured out, oh crap, the, the issue is that we're just coming from two different worlds on this, you know? Right. And I mean, to people that are more explanatory that, you know, the venting style might be seen as kind of brushing things off. And to me, particularly when my partners just want to vent about something, it actually causes me a bunch of anxiety because I'm like, oh, God, I want to help you fix the problem. And make amends. And and then your partner's like, no, stop it. Like, I just wanted to tell you. I don't want you to do anything. Knock it off. Right. (laughs) So that can be really frustrating. Yeah. And it's, it's actually kind of hurt some of my friendships where somebody will come to me venting about a problem and I'm just like, how can I help you? And they take that as like, oh, so you don't want to listen to me? I'm like, no, I do. I just want to know how I can help you resolve this. Like, oh, I just wanted to complain. Oh. Uh, uh. <laughs> like, oh. Right. Okay. So sometimes you have to sort of this is an area where it's good to be kind of self-aware and it's good to kind of say sometimes when I complain about something, I'm not looking to unpack it. I'm just kind of looking to throw it away. You know, I've got the luggage. I don't necessarily care what's packed inside of it. Just my, put it know, to what, the My strategy for, you know, resolving when, and since I had a lot of direct experience with this for resolving when there's a conflict between one person having a venting style and the other person having a more explanatory style is kind of an html tag on the, the conversation that you put on it before you start having it so that both people are on the same page about what what is the desired outcome of this conversation if you're venting say hey i just want i i, I have something i need to get off my chest i just need you to listen to this real quick i don't need you to do anything i don't need you to say anything i just want you to listen to this and make sure that you're hearing it all so in that situation your partner knows oh what they want me to do is reflect what i'm hearing and they want me to empathize they don't want me to solve anything that's great. Right. And if, on the other hand, if I'm the explanatory style communicator, I need to put a tag on my conversation before I launch into it saying, hey, I, I'm not mad at you. I'm not blaming you for what happened. This isn't about making you feel bad or about making you the bad guy here. I just really want to understand how this happened so that we can move forward constructively together because I love you and I care about you and I really want us to get along. I want to make sure that whatever happened that went wrong that caused us to get into a conflict, maybe that we can not do the same things in the future and so that we can get along better in the future because I really love you and care about you. I never want to make you sad. Right? So that's to then explain to the person, hey, I'm not going over this stuff to berate you. I'm going over it with you because I'm trying to make sure that we don't have conflict again because I care about you and I feel like I did something wrong where I made you feel bad and I don't want to do that again. So it's just reframing the conversation in a way that takes it out of it being a blameful conversation and a kind of a conflict-laden conversation and puts the context back on being constructive and healthy and moving forward and being a positive sort of thing. So putting those little HTML tags on, this is why I'm talking to you. This is what I want from the conversation. And being self-aware to know why, why am I talking to my partner? Is it because I want to yell at them to get it off my chest? Is it because I want them to do something? Is it because I need them to hear about my pain? Is it because I need them to know what I'm feeling? Why am I talking? <laughs> Sometimes people don't stop to think, why am I talking? And you be, not only being aware of that yourself and then making your partner aware of why, why it is that you're talking, that can make a conversation go so much better. And I really recommend doing that when you can, especially uh-huh. if you're aware of the fact that you and your partner might have different or conflicting styles. That can make a conversation go so much better. Now, 
underlying all of these different styles is, is kind of the final one. Because this one impacts not just how you communicate, but the way, the words that you communicate with. And that is nonviolent versus violent communicators. And we've spoken about this again. Our second episode was dedicated to this, actually. we This was kind of one of the fundamental things we wanted to discuss. And so, again, we're not going to spend too much time on it. I would highly recommend you go back and listen to that early episode where we're still awkwardly trying to figure out how to do a podcast. And <laughs> oh, those were good times, Vero. Metrico, I'm good still times. awkwardly trying to figure out how to do a podcast. That <laughs> doesn't change. Yeah. Uh, well, we just we, we managed to cover it up a little bit more. <laughs> maybe, <both> maybe <laughs> on a good day. But uh, the other thing I'd mention is our right. episode on empathy, which is basically our nonviolent communication redux show, is also really good. And I have I, have, I forget what episode that was. Let me check real quick. I can look, I can figure that out. Our empathy episode was probably episode thirty something. Do you remember Metrico? I don't know. But while you look that up, let me kind 42. of forty two. It was forty two. The answer is always forty two, Metrico. Good call. So episode 42 is a great one where we do a little bit more of a heavier discussion on empathy, which is a major part of nonviolent communication. Uh, nonviolent communication, it's empathizing with your partner, with whomever you're speaking with, and trying to relate to them on the level that, you know, what what can I say that is going to best bring forward a resolution that isn't going to tear both of us down? So using things like I statements or saying things that are difficult but are absolutely necessary to be said. Finding, you know, ways to resolve that conflict without throwing anybody under the bus, not even yourself. There's no need for there to be a lose-win or a win-lose or a lose-lose situation within the context of a disagreement within a relationship, whether it's, you know, between friends, family, whatever it might be. And it's also apologizing when you fuck up. You have to own your shit when you're practicing nonviolent communication. Because part of it is, if you make a mistake, you take ownership. If your partner makes a mistake, you can communicate how that makes you feel whenever that happens. And rather than being like, you're a shithead who can't get their act right, it's, when you cheat on me, this is, you know, the rep- this is my personal sort of emotional turmoil. And I want to kind of understand why you're doing this so we can find a way to repair it so it stops happening or if we can't resolve it then we need to move on there it's i statements empathy it's speaking truth active it's all listening too active Whereas listening is a key, key component oh, and that's yes. this that's the idea of Super basically important. like i was talking about earlier listening for your partner's needs and wants before focusing on communicating your own needs and wants So making sure you're listening to your partner uh-huh. and reflecting back to them. Hey, I heard what you needed. Here's my understanding of what you need. Now let me tell you what I need, right? So it's, it's the idea of putting the partner's needs and yeah. wants, even if you're ultimately trying to get your own needs met, it's the idea of in communication, emphasizing your partner. I understand you. I under, I'm, I know where you're coming from. Now please hear where I'm coming from and the, putting that order in that, in that particular order, right? And then once both of us know where each of us are coming from, let's find a way to meet in the middle somewhere. So it's a great kind of technique that you can use. Uh, Violent communicators tend to kind of do the opposite. There's no acceptance of fault or blame and a lot of lying and screaming and pointing of fingers or a lot of meta arguments that occur. So instead of like, 
I feel kind of shitty whenever you cheat on me. It's, you son of a bitch. You are a shitty boyfriend. You are a shitty person for doing this. That's very violent. It doesn't really benefit anything other than passing guilt and inflicting shame and blame and doom and gloom. You might feel that way, but what's if your intended sort of result, if what you want is to continue in a relationship, being a violent communicator does not a sustainable relationship make. So, you know, it's, it's kind of burying truths. It's burying difficult things and just kind of keeping things the status quo. It's creating new meta arguments in the context of an existing argument that you can win. And then when you win it, you're like, I'm done talking now because you're wrong and I'm right. Think like the parents from the Matilda movie. Think Danny DeVito, you know, I'm smart, you're dumb, I'm wrong, I'm right, you're wrong, and there's nothing you can do about it, so fuck you. And I've won the argument and kind of pissing and pooping over everything and then walking out of the room leaving it a disaster. So kind of not really the best way to go about things. And one thing that I've always noticed about violent communicators is that there is a very strong refusal to apologize and even if they have to apologize for something there's such a large amount of resentment that it's not even worth the hassle because it's like oh well you've caught me i'm wrong about this Ooh, and they'll sulk and engage in passive aggressive behavior like oh hey honey you're going to the kitchen you know would you mind grabbing me some water oh i don't know if i can do that because i'm such a terrible person that you make me apologize for every goddamn thing what if i don't put ice are you gonna mat that's a form of violent communication with a violent communicator. It's not very fun, it's not very pleasant, and violent communicators tend to be highly abusive in the context of a relationship, so... Nonviolent communicators tend to avoid the emotional abuse portion of it, so... It's always good to err on the side of nonviolent communication, because nonviolence is probably the best way to be in a relationship. Unless it's like good pain in a BDSM <laughs> very, sort of fashion. Very true. You know, if that's what you're into, enjoy. But, you know, it's make sure that's consensual. Like, most of the time, violent communication is not a consenting, you know, portion of a relationship agreement. It just kind of happens. Now, that said, what if my partner so, doesn't buy into the nonviolent communication method? I'm just going to skip down a little bit in our outline because I think it makes more sense to talk about this here. But,. You know, one thing that can often come up yeah. is if you're trying to can maybe teach a violent communicator about, you know, nonviolent communication or you're exposing a violent communicator to nonviolent communication for the first time, sometimes it can seem a little bit too clinical or therapeutic or head shrinky. <laughs> and so your partner might feel like you're trying to manipulate them or trying to like put, put, put the moves on them or, or, or something or emotionally manipulate them by using some technique. That, oh, because it's a technique that make, that makes it manipulative and that makes it bad. That makes it unnatural. That makes it, you know, that we're not really getting our feelings out because we're using some technique to talk. We're not, it's not natural. It's not organic communication anymore. We're not, we're not being raw. We're not being real with each other. So you, you might hear a lot of these types of arguments. So don't use that head shrink shit on me, you know. But one thing you can do is if your partner is, is saying things like that to you is communicate to them, hey, I just want to be able to, you, you to understand, be, the, the point of this is for me to be able to understand and hear your needs and wants and for me, you to be able to hear my needs and wants without us tearing each other's head off. And once we've gotten our needs and wants out there, we can be a lot, we don't have to keep using the technique the, for the entire conversation. Once we've both gotten to the point where we feel like each other has heard each other's needs and wants, how about this? We'll stop using it completely. So there's a, this is a bit of a trick. <laughs> the reason for that is 
once you've used the nonviolent communication to make each other understand each other's needs and wants pretty well, and you can both agree on that, there will be no there will be no more need for violent communication because you'll actually have already empathized, and you're, you'll be you'll already have made you'll already be in the place where communicating is going to be natural and easy, and and you're going to be trying to meet each other's needs because you care about each other. So. Get your partner to agree, oh yeah, sure. If we're only using the technique up to the point where we understand each other's needs and wants, then yeah, that's fine, right? They'll probably be much more amenable to it. What they, what they don't quite get is that once you've gotten to that point, they, they're feeling their anger is going to be gone and there won't be any more violence left, right? Does that make sense, Metrico? Absolutely. So it's kind of funny because what people resist at first they might incorporate um sort of on a subconscious level and what ends up happening is even after everybody gets their needs met they're just like oh this is much nicer let's just keep doing this and it becomes an unintended habit and that's actually kind of a nice way to do it uh one thing that i see is a lot of uh so in the television series The Office, the the American version, there in the last season, two of the characters that um, were romantic interests and got married in the course of the show started fighting, and it started to make fun of nonviolent communication uh, sort of uh, styles and also just general affirmations. Like it was, you know, I hear what you have to say and I understand. And then it was like played for jokes and I affirm your affirmation (laughs) and I affirm your affirmation of my affirmation. And it kind of played it as being, Oh, look at this. This is being completely useless and it's tedious and it's boring. And at the end of it, it was just kind of played up for laughs. Number of episodes where characters just randomly launch into like diatribes of nonviolent communication where it's like, you know, they're just being ridiculous, right? It's kind of like the whole, mm-hmm. uh, this is a sort of English up with yeah. which I will not put kind of way of, of pillorying something, right? right? Yeah, which, I mean, I understand it's kind of funny to poke fun at, perhaps, but at the same time, these can be really beneficial. And it's for people that are like, I see that shit on TV and it never works. And it does work. It's just something that you have to work at. And that can be kind of the tricky part. And it's something that you have to mean sincerely. If you go into something expecting it not to work, it's not going to work. And that's kind of the secret about communication techniques. If you're just concerned, oh, look at them, they're trying to shrinky-dink my head into being, you know, less uh, communicative and to not speak my mind, then it's not going to work because you're already resistant. It's something that you have to be able to commit to. So if your partner can't commit to that, then... It's it's there are some things that you can perhaps do for yourself because not always is it going to be the case that your partner is going to go along with you. And if your relationship is something that you want to remain in, which that is a discussion you have to have with yourself, if nonviolent communication is not sort of one of your emotional boundaries, if it's something that you can work within uh, having a partner that does not engage then you might consider doing things like yeah, it's um, reaching out to other parts of your support network to obtain empathy when able. We talk about this uh, in a lot of our shows where if you're having issues having your partner empathize with you or to legitimize your concerns by speaking with somebody within one of your friends, you can perhaps find that empathy and you can find somebody that you can discuss the problem with. And then once you have some ideas, you can then go back to your partner and find a solution. It's always important 
that if you're reaching out to parts of your support network that you go back to them once a resolution has been reached that way they're just not seeing the shitty parts they're seeing the parts that are in work because if you constantly go to a friend and you're like my boyfriend won't listen to me about this will you help me my boyfriend won't listen to me this will you help me eventually they're gonna be like dump the motherfucker you (laughs) idiot like this dude isn't listening to you so never rely on your support network for situations that are solely bad make sure that you go to them when there is a resolution so they can see that they're helping and that your partner yeah my is key here is like you. if you're really unable if your partner is really is too heated to empathize with you can't really engage with you on the non-violent communication level because they're just too stuck in their violent communication at the moment the tricks are really just you know practice emergency self-empathy tell yourself that hey i don't need my partner to validate my internal emotions and my perspective in order to trust my emotions and my perspective i don't need my partner to understand in order for what i feel to be valid or true I don't need I don't need that external validation here. Tell yourself, you know what? I do feel the way I feel and it's okay to feel how I feel. And give yourself the empathy first because oftentimes what you need what you're really looking for from your partner is them saying it's okay to feel how you feel. I understand how you feel. It makes sense to feel that way. Well, that's what you really oftentimes are looking for when you're really mad and telling yourself that can weirdly actually make you feel better. So, that can be a, emergency self-empathy is a really important tactic here because that can at least calm your own emotions down enough to the point where you can at least take a step back and maybe wait to re-engage with your partner until they're calmer when this time has helped them calm their emotions right so realizing you don't need your partner to validate your emotional state and giving yourself that your kind of your own validity by practicing self-empathy that uh, saying it's okay to feel this way and how i feel makes sense that can that can be really empowering and that can let you then re-engage with your partner once the, your emotions have cooled. And it also can help you in certain circumstances avoid needing to go out to your support network for that validation that your feelings are, va- are valid and normal, right? Because as Metrico, you were just saying, always going out to your support network with things that are negative, especially about your partner, will give the impression that your partner is not a good person or that your relationship is not a good relationship. And you don't really want to be giving your friends that impression if what you're trying to do is to make your relationship better and not to after your friends think your relationship is terrible and ask you to get out of it, right? Right. Um, You know, something else that I recommend is take a time out. This is something that we preach about when it comes to nonviolent communication. Sometimes you just need to take a break. You need to step away and you need to sort of collect your thoughts and recognize what you're trying to say and come up with a nice concise direct way of saying it and what can happen there is once both of you have had time apart you can then sort of come back together and even though you don't need to frame it in the i'm going to communicate non-violently with you now it can be framed in a wonderful way where this is what i'm thinking this is what i think we should do this is how i'm feeling and this is how I feel whenever you react this way. And do you think this is something we can talk about now? And a lot of the time in the heat of the moment, when it comes to, well, let's, let's use our nonviolent communication that just sparks off. Oh, that shit doesn't work. Especially with somebody that isn't too keen on practicing it. So getting away from the heat of the moment can allow you to practice that self-empathy can kind of help you collect your thoughts. It can help you calm down. And it can help your partner calm down as well. So it's a great technique for really all communication styles, I think, especially if you're a venter versus a uh, explainer, because what can happen there is once everybody's apart for a few minutes, it's like, okay, maybe we don't need to have 
a 20 part slideshow postmortem to dissect this uh this argument that we had and maybe we can just kind of focus on what we need to do from here so i find that that helps out a lot really well but in the grand scheme of things though one of the things that you want to talk about with your partner or your partners is what kind of conversation styles do you have what kind of communication styles are you how self-aware are you and then from there so not everybody's going to be on the same page not everybody's going to have the same style so people are different so how do you meet in the middle how do you talk about these mismatches because they're going to exist in any relationship that you have nobody's going to have a 100 percent drift ratio to borrow from pacific rim so one thing that i recommend is again everybody needs to have an honest moment to look at yourselves to, to have an honest moment of self-reflection to find this is how I am. This is how I communicate. And this is, these are areas where I might fall short in. I'm a direct communicator, which means sometimes I'm not as empathetic as I could be. Sometimes I like to put forward my ideas. And if they're not followed, I feel a little bit resentful because it feels like I'm not being listened to. And it feels like my concerns are being shuffled into a group dynamic. So how can I overcome this with a partner who wants more of a consensus. From there, you can then say, this is how I communicate. And these are areas that I feel sometimes that I fall short in or areas that we fall short in. And then allow your partner the same opportunity to express that. And then from there, you have a general idea of areas of pitfalls in conversation and communication that you can then begin to work on. So rather than it being this insurmountable, we have communication issues, it's we have communication issues in point A, B, and C by kind of putting it into a more granular sort of data point. You're then able to approach it in a way that's more, I hate to say it, but approachable because having a communication problem with your partner is kind of like trying to beat back the waves on the ocean. You're never going to succeed because there's too much going on there. But when you focus on certain areas, you put down sandbags, you build levees, you can shore up and you can find ways to stop it from damaging your relationship any further than it already has potentially. Or if you do this at the beginning of a relationship, you can find ways to build the relationship as you go into it. So... I highly recommend using nonviolent communication when you have this conversation, though, even if you are not that skilled in nonviolent communication, do your best. Listen to our episode on it. Do your best and employ those techniques, because what can happen is if you start casting blame on another party, that conversation breaks down entirely. It's not a conversation anymore. It becomes a blame fest. So... One idea, for example, one thing that often comes up is the conversation about open relationships. And this is a question we get often. So sometimes one party wants an open relationship, the other party doesn't. And there's a conversation breakdown, communication mismatch, and it just continues being this looming issue that never gets resolved. So one way that you can sort of resolve the conversation, not the actual solution, but the conversation itself is something like, Sometimes I feel like we miss the mark when it comes to talking about our open relationship, so I'm going to be more open about my thoughts before it becomes an issue. 
do you think this is something that both of us can commit to? By approaching it by your own feelings and your own thoughts, and by giving a call to action for yourself, you can then invite your partner to work on something with you. Even if it's something that they may not struggle with. Your partner may be fully functional of saying, I'm uncomfortable with this and I don't really like this. But by inviting your partner with you as you try to be more verbal about your thoughts concerning something in a way that meets them in a position that they can relate to, it's going to be a little bit more fluid and you're going to find that the conversations, even if you don't get the resolution that you desire, the conversation still happens and you don't feel necessarily like you got shafted. You had your opinions, your ideas, your concerns heard. And if both of you can reach a resolution that both of you can understand and commit to, then it's not really a lose, it's a conversation that had a resolution. And that's a very important fact to keep in mind. It's Conversation and communication styles and working with nonviolent communication, it's not always going to be a winning situation for you. You can employ nonviolent communication, but you may not get the resolution you're looking for. And that's just part of being in a relationship. Relationships are not meant for you to always get your way. Again, it's not about equality. It's not about, well, I gave into this, so you have to give into that. It's about fairness and what's fair for the relationship and what's fair for the people in the relationship. And so it's important to understand that you're not always going to get what you want, even if you employ And one thing you can things. keep in mind there too, is that the way your needs are met, the way your wants and needs are met might not be the way that you initially thought they would be met, but they might be met in a different way. So try to keep an open mind and a growth mindset about these sorts of things and realize, okay, even though I asked my partner to meet my need in this way, he might actually try to meet my need in another way because maybe the way that I want him to meet my need doesn't work for him or her, right? So that's something yeah. you have to keep in mind. Maybe it's not, oh, you know, you're going on a date with your, your other boyfriend and I wanted to go on a date with you that night. Maybe the, your need of going on a date that night isn't going to be met, but maybe your partner offers to take you on a different date, another day that week, right? So... That might be, so or, that, that, that's in a way that can you, know, be, you can kind of yeah. be more creative than that, of course, too. But go, sorry, Matthew, I didn't mean to talk over you. Yeah. No, you're fine. Or, you know, another thing that we often hear is like a sex drive mismatch where it's like, I want more sex. And so I think we should have an open relationship. The resolution may not be an open relationship. The resolution might be your partner starts having more sex with you. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's just because you find one solution doesn't mean that that's going to be the resolution that both of you arrive at so you know be open to compromise be open to exploring new ideas and understand that some resolutions some decisions you make they're going to fail they're not going to work they're going to strike out and that's just that's just how it is sometimes relationship decisions are just trial and error you think okay well maybe we'll try having more sex sometimes yeah. that doesn't work and sometimes uh, you know it's trial and error there like you have to keep in mind that sometimes you might your own idea of your motivations for what you're doing might be wrong. And this is something a lot of people have trouble accepting. But it's something I think you, re, you quickly realize if you practice the nonviolent communication technique. Because let's say that in that last example, I the nonviolent communication makes you communicate your need or your want and then an action you want that addresses that need, right? So you're, in that case, you were saying, I want or I need more sex. Therefore, I would like an open relationship. Your partner then counter offers, you need more sex. 
I will meet your need for more sex by giving you more sex, right? So theoretically, that should then make you feel satiated with resolving that problem. Here's the thing. If you still feel resentful and bad, even though you're having more sex, then clearly what you thought was your need wasn't actually your need because you're still wanting that open relationship, right? So in that case, you have to think about what, yeah. what is it actually that I need here? If it wasn't more sex, if it wasn't just the, the amount of sex, was it variety? Okay. So now you say, hey, I need more variety in my sexual life. Therefore, I want an open relationship. Or I need more kink in my life. Therefore, I want an open relationship. Your partner might then counter offer, okay, let's be more kinky in the bedroom. Let's have, let's go buy a dildo, right? <laughs> so again, that might, that yeah. might solve the problem. But if it doesn't, then again, crap, maybe I got my need wrong. What, what was I actually needing? Oh, maybe it was that I was needing more, a new personality. I need, I need spark. I need new relationship energy. I need to feel a spark with someone again. So now you come to your partner and you say, hey, I need to feel new relationship energy. I need to feel a spark with someone new. Therefore, I would like an open relationship. Well, at this point, your partner has no way of offering that to you except by actually meeting your need, right? But now you, your partner will probably feel yeah. a lot better about the fact that you tried meeting your need in a, in a bunch of different ways your partner was more comfortable with first. That's a much healthier way of resolving this conflict than jumping immediately to the I need a new person solution, right? And that, that actually is a really, for somebody who's not maybe as comfortable with the idea of an open relationship at first, that can be a way less painful way of getting into that open relationship than jumping directly into it might make them feel because at this point it's going to seem like you at least had a, a dialogue and like you tried a bunch of stuff together and like you've been working together this whole time right yeah so you know just try to understand that sometimes relationships again are just trial and error and you try things they don't work they don't sleep uh, sometimes you're literally throwing things at a wall and seeing what sticks. And it can seem a little bit frustrating for some people, but that's kind of the beauty of a relationship. And sometimes you, get messy. And sometimes you don't understand mm -hmm. your own motivations. And sometimes it'll take you a while to figure yeah. out what your motivations are. And you have to be willing to acknowledge that to yourself and to your partner. Sometimes you'll be like, you know what? I thought the reason I wanted this was this, but the actual reason I wanted it was that. And it took me a while to figure that out. And I was wrong. And I'm sorry. I misled you, right? So it can be really hard to take responsibility for even being wrong about yourself or being wrong about your own opinion. But it happens. People change their minds and people, people oh, misunderstand yes. themselves. These things happen a lot. So you need to keep that kind of thing in mind. And be and relationships. Go ahead, Metric. Sorry mm -hmm. about that. <laughs> relationships are super dynamic too. Like they're never static. So, what your wants and needs are right now may not reflect what they are in a year. So it's important that you don't treat yourself or your partner, your mates, however you might want to refer to them, as static individuals. Over time, your needs, your expectations, your place in life is going to change, and so it's important to react and to adapt accordingly. Sometimes the adaptions fall short. Sometimes they aren't accurate reflections. And the important thing to do here is not lie to yourself and not lie to your partner. If you don't know your motivation and you're acting kind of on a general idea, over time that idea gets refined and then you're like, oh wait, no, this is why I want to do this. Okay, we figured it out. So, crap, I'm sorry, I feel like I've led you on, but this is actually what I was intending. And that happens more often than not, quite frankly. So, 
be open to these conversations and be open to these discussions because if you expect for okay well good news i did this and you wanted more sex so i'm having sex five times a week now and god damn it like i hope you're happy that may not be the resolution the the total absolute resolution to the issue it could be something else entirely and you just have to sort of understand that work when you're working at bettering a relationship it's never work that's wasted even if it isn't the correct solution it is still work that you're doing in order to better understand the relationship and to better understand the dynamic that you have with one another as both of you evolve as individuals and as a relationship unit with polyamory of course that can be a little bit more complex and a lot more diverse so it's super essential that you bear that in mind with everybody because Quite honestly, some people kind of view polyamorous groups as being just kind of like, well, it's just a collective, and what's good for the collective is good for everyone. What's good for the gander is essentially good for the goose. And that's never the case. So be willing to adapt and change, and be willing to evolve with the relationship, and make mistakes, and get messy, and get dirty. That's what a relationship is, because it's never just about, okay, well, we found the solution. It's, it's about the f- total journey to that point. And part of this is about mindfulness, too, and being aware of the fact yeah. that, yeah. you know, I need to stop and reflect on the, not only how, what someone is saying and react immediately to what they're saying, but the stoic approach and the mindful approach to that is to also think about how are they communicating what they're saying and why are they communicating it? And stopping to ask yourself those how and why questions. What communication style are they using? Why are they even talking to me? What is their objective here? What is it that they want? Stop and ask yourself those questions before you even react, because that way you know what communication style you want to use and how you want to present your message so that you're actually addressing the situation, moving it in a direction of positivity and constructiveness and not making it more kind of escalatory and making it more painful for everyone. Mindfulness is basically the the key here, and it's recognizing what communication styles are being used and why they're being used and listening for the needs and wants behind your partner's messages always the number one thing that will always make your communications go better is being mindful to listen for your partner's needs and wants behind what they're saying no matter what they're saying so the word not putting so much emphasis on the words but instead hearing the emotions behind the words and hearing the needs and wants that are generating those emotions. Working on practicing that skill is what really makes you excellent at active communication and makes you, it will make you really good at making your partner feel heard and understood. And the, that's a skill that is really tough to master, but it's worth it. It's worth working on. I've been working on it for a very long time myself. I'm not perfect at it myself, but it's something that I'm really proud that I've worked on for a very long time and it's helped my communication with my partners immensely. So I can't emphasize that enough. Being Working on being mindful enough to hear the needs and wants behind your partner's messages, no matter how they're presented, is going to make you a much more effective communicator, especially if you're in a polyamorous relationship. 100% agree with that. You know, one other thing that I kind of want to mention is a lot of communication styles are kind of enforced by the way that you are brought up. It can be a cultural, societal sort of... Um, imprint it could be a familial imprint if your mother or father uh communicate in kind of a passive violent way you're more than likely going to adopt that we are sort of products of the locations that we grow up in so 
what can be important if it's something that your partner recognizes and they're wanting to work on to improve, to, to be a better communicator, to be more of a direct communicator, is to approach it in a way that never discourages them from trying. It can be sometimes that they make mistakes. And you don't always want to highlight those mistakes and kind of write on them and like, well, you had an opportunity to do it here and you didn't. Why didn't you do that? It's, it's again, you don't want to cast shame and blame. What you should do is practice positive sort of reinforcement. It's okay to mention like, oh, hey, this would have been a great opportunity for you to practice direct communication. It's fine that you didn't because we figured it out, but, you know, maybe next time this comes up, you can try that. And then when they do, like, hey, you know, I'm glad that you did that. I'm glad that, you know, we were able to do this and you were able to communicate more directly. It's important to find a way to do the compliments without sounding belittling or condescending. You know, sometimes you can be like, hey, you did it. You get a star. And if you get 10 stars, you get a blowjob. It doesn't necessarily kind of work that way. Everybody makes mistakes in communication and everybody's shit stinks. Like, that's just kind of the truth of the matter. So if you act like you're perfect in communication, it's never the case. We all make mistakes. I make mistakes. Vero, I mean, you make mistakes. I sure do. As, <laughs> as you've said throughout the course of this, I certainly do. Everybody makes mistakes. And it's important that you don't approach it from the I'm perfect, I'm a model, I'm the Linda Evangelista of goddamn communication. I can just open my mouth and it's beautiful and everybody loves me. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody's shit stinks when it comes to communication. It's everybody's working on it. And it's work worth doing. And if you're in a relationship, it is work worth doing together. Regardless of where you come from, regardless of your background, regardless of what you bring into the relationship, that is what you bring into. From the moment you enter the relationship, it is the sum of all of your parts together. And it is important to shore each other up, to build each other up in a way that works for the relationship as a whole. In general, direct, nonviolent communication tends to be the most successful. However, you might find it works differently for your relationship, and that's completely fine. Identify what works for you as a unit and work to improve on that for both you and your partner or your partners, whomever else is in the relationship. We're going to go ahead and move on there. It's This is an important topic, and we didn't want to kind of rush through it, but... If you have questions, if you have comments, if you have examples from your own relationship where you've worked through, the, through this, or you have specific questions about ways that you can implement uh, positive changes and work on communication mismatches within your relationship, hit us up on our contact page or offer us some feedback, more information on that. But we do have a question we want to address before we get there. Now, this question comes to us... Um, I believe this was sent to us via email, and uh, it's an anonymous question, and they wrote in with, uh, should I end things with my mate since we have no way to see each other? They write, hello, Vero and Metrico, I would like some advice. I am a younger fur, I'm only 15, and my boyfriend is 14, and we haven't been able to have a proper conversation since June. In late June, his parents found some of our conversations on his phone and revoked his social media privileges. It's getting pretty hard at this point. 
While we both live in the same general area, we go to different schools and can't talk. Adding to this, my parents, uh, my mother especially, are incredibly homophobic and took my phone away for two months after they learned that I was dating another boy. What should I do in this situation? Do we break up or find some other way around all of these hardships? I really need help and I can't turn to anyone else. So I think Vera. I think that my personal perspective on this is, again, it comes down to understanding your needs and wants and really reflecting on what it is you're looking for in a relationship. This is something you're probably not used to doing at your age. It's something that most people aren't used to doing. But uh, you need to think about what is it that you're hoping to get out of this relationship. Do you just want to be able to say that you're in a relationship? Do you take some validation from having a boyfriend or having a having a part a mate? Does it make you feel good just to have a mate, even if it, it doesn't really mean very much because you can't really interact? Is it something that you would just enjoy on the intrinsic level? Is, is it reassuring to know that you can have someone who's invested in you that way, who's willing to say that they're your partner, who likes you enough to say that you're your, they're your partner? What is it that you're getting out of this? What Why is it that you want this relationship? Is it that you want a sexual partner? Is it that you want a someone that you can confide in? Because if those are what your needs are, then maybe this relationship isn't sufficient for your needs because it's not going to give you those things, at least in the short to medium term. Maybe at that point you should break up and seek a relationship that can meet your needs more effectively. So you need to think about what is it that I'm in this relationship for? What are my needs here? And are they being met? And that should really guide whether or not you should break up because it very much seems like the situation isn't going to change anytime soon. You're not going to be able to interact regularly anytime soon with this person. So you need to think about why am I in this relationship and am I getting my needs met? That makes sense to you, Metrico? Yeah, 100%. It can be kind of a difficult situation at your age where you live in particularly a hostile environment where both your parents and also his parents are not necessarily super receptive to your relationship. So, you know, taking what Vero said, taking his advice and sort of reflecting on, you know, is this something that you can sustain over a long period of time. I don't necessarily know if you should end things with your mates, but at the same time, I think that you should pursue relationships in the way that best makes both of you happy. Relationships do require a level of communication. And the issue is, is that in cases like this, where the communication is disrupted by parental units, it may not be sustainable right now. Again, something that you might consider is you're, he's 14, you're 15. And I'm not downplaying your ages. What I'm saying is that you have roughly between three to four years before you are presumably the legal age, uh, at least within the United States. You don't specify where you're located, but we'll just assume you're here in America. If not, my apologies. And then from that point, what happens if you re-enter a relationship? Are you cut off from your parents' funding? You have to sort of analyze what makes best sense for you in the long run and also the short run. While it can seem sort of the best option to pursue love, sometimes you have to look out for your own best self-interest. And I'm not saying you go to an ex-gay camp and you renounce, you know, being queer. But sometimes you put having a relationship on hold while you are not self-sufficient. And that is an incredibly shitty thing, and I completely understand. I grew up in a similar household where when I was uh, outed, I was disowned, and it was really quite nasty. And I think about 
what I could have done differently, and there really wasn't anything that was out of my control, but if I had the option to come out to my parents at 15, I probably would not have, uh, and I had no intention of it. I was very, very deeply inside of the closet. Uh, I was like Narnia levels of in the closet. And for me, it was because I didn't necessarily want to lose that connection. When I, I recognized that when I was stable and self-sufficient, then I could live the life that I wanted. Now, obviously, that's an incredibly emotionally and mentally draining prospect because you're having to deny your truth to essentially everybody but yourself, and there's a lot of reconciliation you have to make with that. I would advise against trying to convince your parents to try to change your parents because oftentimes that doesn't work and it drives a wedge and it can actually kind of further divide you from any form of seeing eye to eye with your parents. Focus on what it is you want in life. People have different needs, but generally you want to have a stable job, you want to have a stable housing, a good source of income, and you want to have somebody to share your life with. The rest kind of builds off of that, whether you want to enter into a poly relationship, whether you want children, things of that nature. But do things that set yourself up for future success. It could be right now you're not able to date your boyfriend. Just because you end a relationship, a romantic entanglement with somebody, doesn't mean that it's ended forever. And it's important to understand that. You may not be able to date him right now, but you might be able to date them four years from now, five years from now, maybe six years from now. You can still find ways to stay in contact, probably. And both of you might be able to shape your lives together in a way where both of you end up going the same places. That being said, and this is just honest truth, many relationships at 14 and 15 do not last a lifetime. And while I'm not saying that yours is not going to, Typically speaking, you're at a point in your life where both of you are still figuring out where it is you want to go and what it is you want to become. And a lot of the time, those end up being sort of mutually exclusive to one another. Enjoy what you have, and in some cases, enjoy what you had. Learn from it. Sort of file it away in your memory to cherish but consider what your next steps might be. If you can't communicate with somebody, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to have a sustainable relationship. My recommendation in this, unfortunately, is you need to kind of end your relationship. But that's not to say that you can never enter a relationship with him again. That's not to say that the relationship that you enter in with him again is not a long-lasting, loving one. And my suggestion there is to end the relationship unless your needs are being met. And th that need would be to say that I have a partner to, you know, be able to present as if I'm taken. And if that's something that you enjoy, to be able to have that validation of knowing that you've got someone who's willing to say they're yours, then you can keep being partners. But that's all you're going to get out of it, unfortunately. So keep that in mind. Yes. So I'm sorry that it's not like super duper optimistic sort of things, but the unfortunate fact is at 14, at 15, even at 18, God, it's difficult to focus on yourself and focus on a relationship in tangent. 
because there are so many things in flux at that time in your life that oftentimes you have to sideline one. And however difficult it is to say, personal development is often more important than a romantic development, especially at that stage in your life. It's not to say that both aren't sustainable together, but oftentimes the one that ends up being sort of shoved away or put onto the back burner is going to be a romantic adventure as you figure out how and where and when and what you need to do to get to where you want to be in life. So, sorry if I sound doom and gloom. I promise you <laughs> it's... Things sometimes get worse before they get better, and they get better because you get stronger. And that's kind of the whole secret behind the whole It Gets Better project, or even working out. You, the fact is, is that if you go to the gym and you lift the same weights, over time the weights are going to be easier to lift. It's not because the weights get easier, they get lighter, it's because you get stronger as an individual. And when it comes to facing hardships, especially at your age, you can learn from them and you can sort of reflect on them for a longer period of time than you can when you have them and encounter them when you're at an older age. And so a lot of the time when people date at a younger age, they're able to learn how to handle rejection, how to handle asking people out, how to handle awkwardness. When it comes to queer people, we often have to forego that because our parents say no. You're learning at an early age in this, unfortunately, that your parents may not be accepting of you having a same-sex relationship. And that is a question you have to ask yourself, and it may not be something you share with them immediately. But what is the role that your family is going to have in your life down the line when you are self-sustainable, when you are a completely independent, fully-fledged you that is you? What role are they going to have in your life then? And it's a difficult question to ask, but it's something that you should reflect on. Don't come to a decision right away. Have that in the back of your mind as you continue to grow and mature. And as you decide on the path in your life, you can then decide on the path of the people that currently share your life with you. We're going to go ahead and close the show out there. Thank you for your question. I hope that it provided some kind of information, some kind of advice, and as always, feel free to reach out to us again at any time. It's We genuinely wish you the best. It's I've been where you are, and it's, it's not an enviable position at all. And I regret that we kind of live in a society where this is a permissible thing for a parent to do, to revoke any form of communication. It's so backwards to me, and it doesn't promote healthy really anything. It just promotes, this is my way, and for what? For for bullshit religious reasons, for you're not ready for a relationship. Instilling these kinds of values and teaching you that what you're doing is quote-unquote wrong is not the way to go about it. So please let us know how you go and how things progress and if we can offer any further help. If you, our listeners, have advice or your own stories or any suggestions for our questioner for this week, please let us know. Visit our feedback page. It's on our contact page at feralattraction.com. Contact us. There's a form there. You can submit feedback, your own questions, whatever it might be. We welcome your questions. We welcome your feedback. And we definitely welcome your corrections. Next week, we're going to have a conversation uh, topic that 
is actually come up a few times in our show, come up a few times in our questions, but it's something that we haven't dedicated a show on. Uh, that's changing next week. We're going to talk about porn next week. It's the porn episode, but it's not about finding porn. It's about the role that porn and self-pleasure play in a relationship. How do you handle masturbation in a relationship where your partner might have expectations or sex expectations of you to not get off without them? We're going to go through that. We're going to find ways to talk about how you can negotiate self-pleasure or self-care, how you can tend to your own garden without neglecting the fabulous remainder of the landscaping. It can be an even bigger problem in polyamorous or open relationships, negotiating who's allowed to come, who, when, with who, and wh how often. So we'll talk about all that kind of stuff, especially in the context of self-pleasure next week. If you would like to help support us, it would help us if you would give us a rating or a review on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. It helps our boost our visibility, helps more people come into contact with the show. We have a very active Twitter. You can retweet things that we say. You can interact with us. If you consider maybe giving a financial contribution, you can become a patron of ours on Patreon. We have different donation tiers, uh, ranging from just, you know, thanks, because we genuinely do mean it. Thank you. Your donations help us to have subscriptions to medical journals to get new and exciting information about relationship uh, psychology and sexuality studies and the fascinating sub 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 sect of subspace it's quite fascinating <laughs> actually it helps us to get books and other and to support the technology we use to record the show and we also have one that gives shout outs at the end of every episode and we're at that point now so rejoice everybody miss hyde is one such patron and she participated back in august uh, in a streak for the tigers which was a naked run around the London Zoo. And it was done to help support uh, and raise funding to protect tigers in the wild and to protect their natural habitats, which are in incredible danger. Please, please, please give to Miss Hyde if you can. She has a link to her Just Giving page, and you can find more information about that on our show notes or by going to her Twitter at Hanaconda Sparks. Maybe you're looking for some art. Maybe you want to get a commission. Snares is a patron of ours, and he has a one-stop site for commission information as well as a project uh, comic that he is working on. You can find that at his Patreon, patreon.com snares. Or maybe you're a fan of literature and you want to read a new book. Well, Zarpolis is there for you. Zarpolis has written a book titled The Pride of the Parahumans, Pr The Pride of Parahumans, rather, and you can check it out on Amazon or read a recent review that was done in the Dogpatch Press. It's sci-fi, sci high-tech, furries, and space. It's quite a fun read from what I've heard. So I have it on my to-read list, and I'll let you know what I think. Maybe you're just looking for a new friend on Twitter, though. Well, Myron is there for you. You can follow Myron at Myron the Fluffy for daily red panda dog ramblings and pictures. Again, links to everybody's website, Twitter, Zarpolis's Patreon and website, patreon.com slash Zarpolis. All of this can be found in our show notes posted alongside our show every week. I want to thank you for listening to our show this week. 
Again next week, we're going to talk about porn and self-pleasure in a relationship. Until then, I'm Metrico. And I'm Vera the Science Collie. Be well. Thank you.